Blog Talk Radio. Welcome back. If you've never been here before, welcome for your first time. I'm the Right Reverend John St. Germain, welcoming you to the Crystal Silence League Hour, episode 148, as we count down. Or is it 149? It's 149, isn't it? As we count down to 150, and we'll celebrate. I don't know how. I'll figure something out. The Crystal Silence League Hour, brought to you by LMC Radio Network. A network of fine spiritual radio. Why don't you come back in just a minute and we will continue our exploration of the afterlife with a discussion of out of body experiences, near death experiences, and the survival of the soul. Come right back, won't you? I don't know if any of you ever used to listen to music from the hearts of space. I guess it's still on NPR. I used to listen to it with great intensity if such a thing were possible. And they used to play music quite like that. And when I first started the show, I said, I would like this to be a show similar to music from the hearts of space. I always wanted to start it with soothing and relaxing music and sort of have that laid back characteristic to the show because I'm kind of a laid-back, metaphysical, kind of meditative sort of fellow and have meditative subjects and spiritual subjects and not get in a hurry with where we're going and spend many, many weeks discussing topics, which is what we do. And uh, it came back in a, a conversation and feedback that people find my voice very relaxing. It's because I've been a hypnotist for over 40 years, and I cultivated a hypno voice, a very relaxed sort of voice. And people said, well, I often listen to your show in uh, podcast, Reverend, because when I listen to you live at 8 o'clock, I often just fall off to sleep, not because your show is boring, but because your voice is so relaxing. And I find that, I, I suppose, a compliment, although the idea of people listening to my show um, and falling asleep, I, I'm not sure that's uh, – what I go for, but um, that they do listen to it in podcast is, I suppose, a good thing. And all of our shows, the Crystal Silence League Hour, is in podcast. And if you go over to the Lucky Mojo forum, 
and look under the Crystal Silence Lead subject, you will find a link with a description to every show, which I personally, one at a time, with great effort, put up myself for your entertainment pleasure. And of course, the Crystal Silence League was originally founded about 1917 by a magical adept by the name of Claude Alexander Conlon, a very interesting man with a somewhat controversial and checkered past, who later in life founded the Crystal Silence League for the purpose of projecting positive prayer and affirmation for all those in need. And when he passed into the silence around 1954, the League went with him until about 2007, when it was brought to life once again, resurrected in cyberspace on the Internet by magical adepts from Missionary Independent Spiritual Church. And you can find the Crystal Silence League online at www.crystalsilenceleague.org. And on that page, you'll find prayer requests that you can post, and there's no charge to do this. We're a nonprofit organization, and prayer is always free at the Crystal Silence League. And if you post a prayer there, you'll find that all of our pastors and all of our members will pray for you. And when you get a prayer, there's a click, and you'll get an email that says you have been prayed for. And many, many people tell us that this, these prayers are answered. Not every prayer is answered in the way that you hope they are. We do believe all prayers are answered, but sometimes because of the will of the higher power, the script that is written, the, the higher will, the higher purpose, sometimes the answer is no. And sometimes the answer is, not yet, you're just going to have to wait until the time is right, until the stars are right. And so it's been my purpose ever since we started the show that I read some of these prayers out loud, which we will. But first, why don't we have our crystal of the week, which is uh, astrophilite, which is a coppery mineral, uh, usually found embedded in a white rock. And it is a... Um, um, a very interesting stone. Now, it's found all over the world, and it's very beautiful. And uh, I've seen them tumbled, but I like them in its raw state. And it's uh, it's potassium and iron and titanium silicate. Uh, so it can, you'll find, when you find these rocks, that you might find uh, various shades of gold, yellow, coppery bronze. There could be flashes of blue within it because of the various mineral components. And sometimes you'll find radiated spiky uh, extrusions of this in white uh, calcite. So they're very unusual. Uh, you'll find them in blades and star-shaped groups, and then you'll find massive forms of them. They always have uh, spikes and blades in them, though, and uh, a very interesting rock. They're not uh, common. They're they're fairly rare, but they're not expensive, and you can get amulets made of them, and they're very pretty when they're polished. You can also find chunks of them, and these resonate because of their different colors. By the way, um, they um, resonate to the crown chakra, the third eye chakra, and the soul star chakra, the eighth chakra, um, and because of all this various uh, interconnections and things, it will uh, um, sometimes the darker ones even um, will connect with the Earth Star Chakra. So you can connect the Soul Star Chakra all the way down to the Earth Star Chakra, which is very interesting. Um, so um, why don't we um, talk about this and see what all it does now? Um, what would you use this for? Well, um, it can accelerate you on almost any spiritual journey you might want to undertake. Uh, it will help you connect with the inner being, your soul. And uh, so in any sort of transformative journey you may undertake, um, it will help you in that, but 
what I'm mostly interested in with this is that it can help facilitate out-of-body journeys, astral travel, and uh, dream yoga. Now, as we know, if you practice uh, dream yoga, the uh, third eye, the crown chakra, and the sacral chakra uh, must be highly charged. The, all the chakras have to be highly charged in order to do out-of-body projection with dream yoga to uh, travel, to astral travel. And please don't use the term astral planing. That just irritates the heck out of me to use astral planing as a verb. People say, yeah, I've been astral planing. I said, do you mean traveling in the astral plane? That's kind of like saying, I've been New Yorking. You mean you've been traveling to New York? Because the astral plane is a location. Um, you know, it's a place you go, sort of. Um, it's not a verb. So the, traveling in the astral plane as you go out of body, and it can help you with that. Uh, astrophilite is uh, very easy to obtain, not so easy to work with. But it is very good for out-of-body travel. It can facilitate this. You'll find that you um, um, carry this around with you, and you may actually attract the teachers that you need to help you learn these skills. Uh, some people do it spontaneously. They will spontaneously leave their body when they meditate, and those um, those people who are that talented find that they can travel forward, backward in time, travel to other planets and other dimensions. Um, this gives you a grounding point to bring you back. So that's a astrophilite, an interesting stone to work with. Well, let's take a moment to look at our prayers this week. And I'm going to tell you that we get uh, anywhere from 100 to 200 prayers a week. And it's not possible um, to go through all these. Sometimes we get 100 a day, I believe. It depends on what's happening in the world and what's happening with people. So uh, as we go through these, I've, I've gone through to help people uh, edit and remove their prayers. And I've sometimes seen, well, like today, I have 40 prayers up and... Every one of them is dated the past two days. So we've gotten 40 prayers in the past two days. That's 20 a day. So 20 times, that's 140 prayers if that continues. We've got 140 prayers in the past seven days, right? I did that in my head. Isn't that funny? Isn't that impressive? So um, this week we would have gotten about 140 prayers, assuming that is average. And sometimes we get more. Sometimes we, we'll get 20, 30, 40, 50 a day. And sometimes people will post uh, 20 prayers themselves. You know, They post a lot of prayers. And so I'm going to read these out loud, and I invite you to pray with me. And those of you who know the use of crystal balls for projection, by all means, use those. I have a crystal ball in front of me that I use when I pray. And you can learn about the use of prayer by looking at our books, uh, Crystal Gazing, and the Codes and methods of using them in another book, and then the uh, Crystal Magic written by me. So let's, and we also have some programs that I've recorded that you can download. Um, uh, again, look at the links on the uh, four branches of Crystal Amancy. And we'll discuss it maybe after this. We'll, we'll reiterate some of those. So we have prayer ID 74604 who prays, please let T get hired. And lift her financial burden. Amen. Short and sweet. Prayer ID 74603. My ex-husband will be caught with an underage girl. Oh, my God. I'm just not sure when. I feel sick for her and for anyone else he may hurt before he's caught. I reported him, but he uses brujeria to cover his tracks and influence others. I didn't know his family had a history of pedophilia. Two brothers convicted. I am usually a live-and-let-live person, but two things get me. One, forcing your will on another, and two, hurting kids, animals, the environment, the less fortunate and the vulnerable. He is a vampire. May he be caught and punished soon. Amen. So mote it be. Prayer ID 74601. 
JBAB, born on June 15th, will receive 200, uh, I guess, $2 million USD. On Thursday, July 26th, JBAB, born on June 15th, SAB, born May 10th, Day LAG, born October 29th, JF, born November 1st, will get accepted into Queens College before August 8th, and we'll get a phone call about the acceptance on August 11th. These are petitions. May these come true, especially the $2 million. Amen. And don't forget to tithe your church. Pray ID 74600. Just got called. The kid's dad lost his job, had contact, very well respected work. Boss told him moving him to new project since the work ended. Supposed to be no problem. Great need for this work. Now his boss on verge of tears, not understanding why. They said contract had to end when he could be moved. Made no sense. Typical. Please, please, please. Make this company hire him right now. Most important, pray that he's not jobless at all for any time. My job doesn't make enough to support. The kids can't survive. Amen. Well, you know why this is. Maybe he's a soybean farmer. Prayer ID 74599. Was that a little bitterness in my voice? Maybe it was. I adopted my sons and have tried to stay on good terms with birth mom by sending pics and updates. Now she and the birth father are threatening me and threatening me and threatening I will lose my kids. Now I have to get a restraining order. It's nuts. Please pray these people away. Pray they leave me and my family alone and stop trying to start trouble. I ask us humbly in Jesus' name. Thank you. Amen. <coughs> Pardon me. Prayer ID 74598. Dear Lord, please let D reach out to me ASAP. And let me know what he is thinking about. Help us work through our issues so that we are able to enjoy his remaining time here together. Keep our thoughts and actions loving and focused on the bigger picture, not small struggles. God, please bless us in the time left we have to spend with each other. Amen. Prayer ID 74597. Our dear Heavenly Father, I pray that our landlord that realtor and whoever else is involved will stop and prevent it from trying to get rid of most of our pets, pay double the rent if we don't agree to the terms of the lease, or force us to move out. I also pray that we find a legal representative that will take our case and will help us fight this the best way possible. Amen. Oh, I hate those landlords that don't like pets. You know, we have rental property, my wife and I, and we allow pets. Prayer ID 74598. I pray with all my heart to become a better person, version of myself mentally and emotionally. Amen. Prayer ID 74594. Heavenly Father, Lord, uh, thank you for all you've done for me through my life. I now ask that you wrap your light of protection around me, my home, and all who dwell in it, to be able to take some courses and to be able to pay my bills and keep this house that we love so much in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Prayer ID 74591. Thank you, Mother, Father, God, for this perfectly blessed day. I am grateful. And prayer ID 74588, a special prayer request for HHH to get the captain job. Turn all eyes to favor him. Help him, protect him, give him the understanding he needs. Amen. Well, let's have a moment of silent prayer for all those in need of comfort, support, and affirmation.
Amen. And I would like to remind everyone, this is a call-in show, unless you're listening on podcasts, and you can call and talk to yourself, I guess. But we're live at the moment, and the number to call is 657-383-0525 if you have any questions or you just want to talk to me or whatever. We are a call-in show. No one ever calls me, but, you know, you call in and then you press 1, and a little flag pops up, and uh, it says... um, Kaboom. And if you call that, I will put you on the air. And uh, goodness gracious, is that a call? I think it might be. Um, Hello. Hello. Hi, caller. You're on the air. Hi, it's Yolanda. I'm just calling to say hi since you say that nobody calls uh, calls in. That's all. (laughs) Oh, you just called to say hi? Well, hi. You don't have any questions or anything? No, no, I just like uh, listening to your show, and um, thank you for the work you've done for my daughter, Irene. Oh, I know that. Oh, well, thank you. Hey, yeah. did it work? Uh, yes, yes, it did. Thank you. Oh, well, you're welcome. You know, I'm glad. You know, good luck, and bless you. Thanks for calling. Okay, goodbye. <laughs> Bye. Well, how about that? I'm I'm glad that the switchboard works. We got some calls at the very beginning of the show, and uh, back in the old days, and uh, it was kind of fun. People called and asked about rocks and stones, and they said, "Well, what what's good for migraines?" Of course, that's uh, sodalite, you know, lapis lazuli. You put them in the refrigerator, put them in the freezer, and get them cold and put them on your forehead. That's really good for migraines and for headaches, and uh, you know, also for things like. <clears throat> um, if you find yourself fretting a lot, um, your mind racing with uh, negative thoughts, you can lay on your back and meditate and put cold blue stones on your third eye, and it will calm and cool your head off. I've been I've been doing that a lot lately. I read the headlines and look at the news and go, you know, just say, okay, okay, get you get you a flat, round piece of lapis lazuli and lay it on your head, John. Time to time to cool that third eye off. Um, we're talking tonight about. Uh, out-of-body experiences and near-death experiences. We've been looking at stories and tales of uh, scientists and doctors who've studied uh, people who've had near-death experiences. And tonight, we'll, let's look at some of the uh, the other side, alternative explanations, uh, more mundane explanations. We've looked at near-death experiences in different cultures uh, throughout time. Well, there have been uh, skeptics that have looked at this and come up with alternative explanations uh, that don't involve the existence of a soul or anything. And uh, we'd like to look at some of that maybe and see if maybe some of these explanations may make sense. And um, what uh, some of the skeptics may say, and I'm not going to look at all of them because there have been explanations like hypoxia, you know, star- oxygen starvation, over oxygenation. Um, wishful thinking, fantasy, etc. Uh, most of these have been shot down. Um, there have been tests. There have been um, uh, comparisons between near-death experiences and people who have undergone these experiences, and they don't compare. So, But the one that really caught my interest at one point was the temporal lobe seizure theory. Um, and seizures are caused by abnormal electrical discharges in the brain. And seizures in the temporal of the brain can cause auditory and visual hallucinations, memory flashbacks, um, feelings of deja vu, and sometimes, very rarely, feelings of being out of the body. So this seems like a very good uh, area of uh, research to explain out-of-body experiences, right? Near-death experiences. So... Um, so these seizures are thought by some researchers to be a primary cause of near-death experiences. Some researchers said that's it. That's what we should look at. Because the release of endorphins and hypoxia have been proposed as triggers for temporal low seizures in the dying brain. And we'll talk about the dying brain hypothesis, too, at some point. So maybe the stress of dying can cause the release of endorphins. But whether the endorphins cause seizures is, is unclear, possible but unclear. Endorphins appear to have both um, pro-convulsant and anti-convulsant properties. 
right? And the authors of one medical study even suggest that endorphins may be effective in treating, not causing, but treating, temporal load seizures. But hypoxia, on the other hand, has been shown to increase the susceptibility of the brain to seizures, including seizures of the temporal lobe. So maybe lack of oxygen to the brain can cause temporal load seizures, such as what occurs sometimes during heart attacks. So regardless of whatever triggers the the temporal lobe seizure, all the proponents of this theory are very impressed by the similarity between near-death experiences and the symptoms of temporal lobe seizures. So what uh, the question was with the researchers, how similar are they? So there was a pediatrician by the name of Dr. Melvin Moore who had done a lot of research in near-death experiences in children. So he, he built a model. He proposed the model of the near-death experience based on temporal lobe seizures, uh, along with a couple of other physicians uh, by the name of David Venetia and uh, Gerald Milstein. So the authors uh, proposed um, a support for this model uh, based on the work of Wilder Penfield, who identified areas of the temporal lobes associated with with uh, psychical hallucinations, memories, heavenly music, and religious visions through direct electrical cortical stimulation during neurosurgical procedures. This seemed like, hey, a good place to start, right? So um, in a book published um, about a year after the research, um, uh Dr. Melvin Morse and science writer Paul Perry described how their theories on near-death experiences became inspired by the re- research of uh, Mr. Penfield. And uh, he says, and I'll look it up here. Okay, here it is. Our team of researchers began to examine Penfield's work buried in a 40-year-old textbook. We found clear references to areas of the brain that when electrically stimulated produced out-of-body experiences the area he was mapping was the sylvian fissure, an area in the right temporal lobe located just above the right ear. When he electrically stimulated the surrounding areas of the fissure, patients frequently had the experience of seeing God, hearing beautiful music, seeing dead friends and relatives, and even having a panoramic life review. This was an exciting find. We had confirmed the specific area of the brain where near-death experiences occur. Okay, but did they? Let's go on here. The only reference to Penfield's work Morse and Perry provide, though, is in a 1955 article in the Journal of Mental Science. And the only example in this article to anything remotely like what Morse and Perry describe is that of a 33-year-old man who suffered from seizures. When the right temporal lobe was stimulated, he seemed confused and shortly afterward exclaimed, Oh God, I'm leaving my body, and reportedly looked terrified. And after, when asked if the experience was like his habitual seizures, he replied, A bit, sir. And after a pause added, I had the fear feeling. And what Morse and Perry called a 40-year-old textbook is presumably the cerebral cortex of man published in 1950, exactly 40 years before their book. And the only reference in this book to anything remotely like what they described are in Chapter 9, titled Psychical Seizure of Temporal Region. And like that article that was mentioned above, this chapter discusses experiments involving electrical stimulation of the temporal lobe in people who have seizures. And one woman describes hearing a lullaby her mother had been in the habit of singing to her. And Penfield writes, It was obvious that the hallucinations produced by the stimulating electrode were made up from memories, some of them quite recent. And Penfield also wrote, This man had minor seizures in which he felt very strange, as though he were out of this world, and the same sensation was produced by stimulation on the lower portion of the second temporal convolution. So Penfield summed up, finally, the conclusion is unavoidable that when complex hallucinations are induced by stimulation of the temporal cortex, the music a patient hears and the appearance before him of his mother or friends are like memories. 
The patient is conscious of and thinks over these hallucinations as he would a memory which he had himself summoned. So, based on these experiments, Penfield concludes that the temporal cortex is essential to the process of remembering or interpreting things seen and heard. So, eight years later, in another book that he wrote called The Excitable Cortex in Conscious Man, he, he did a lot of research in the temporal lobe. I was very interested in this because, you know, the uh, hypnagogic experience, sleep paralysis, that's also linked to temporal lobe seizures. And uh, if you've ever had sleep paralysis, which I have, by the way, it's a very frightening experience. And uh, it's been linked to temporal lobe um, seizures or activities. So I was very interested in this whole research thing. I got lots of stuff on it. So Penfield describes the electrical stimulation of the temporal lobe of a young woman. Uh, oh, hang on. Um, who said, I hear music now, a funny little piece. And Penfield added, the electrode was kept in place and she became more talkative, saying that the music she was hearing was something she had heard on the radio. And another young woman who had epileptic seizures, he said, in summary, the localized epileptic discharges in the right temporal lobe of this young woman were causing her to experience from time to time, one, a sense of false familiarity, deja vu, a feeling of fear, reproductions of previous experience. The first was an illusion, the second an emotion, the third a hallucination. And these are all to be considered psychical phenomena, any one of which the operator might hope to reproduce by stimulation. So Penfield carried out an experiment in which he electrically stimulated her right temporal lobe and concluded, pardon me a minute, The psychical hallucinations thus produced were made up of experiences from the patient's past, not particularly important ones. Now, remember what was claimed in the earlier book by the researchers. And I'm going to ask you, do any of these examples sound anything remotely like the experience of seeing God, hearing beautiful music, seeing dead friends and relatives, and even having a panoramic life review. No. No. These are mundane experiences of recalling experiences and memories, as you would if you were just reminiscing. So similar research by other neurologists support the conclusion that electrical stimulation of the temporal lobes results in rather mundane phenomenon. Um, that bear very little resemblance to those found in the near-death experience. And in 1978, a group of researchers at the Reed Neurological Research Center, um, and I'll give you their name, Eric Hallgren, Richard Walter, Diana Cherlo, and Paul Crandall, uh, carried out thousands, not hundreds, but thousands of such experiments over the course of uh, Many years, and regarding their conclusions, um, they wrote of 3,495 stimulations of the medial temporal lobe of 36 psychomotor epileptics. 267 were accompanied by reports of mental phenomena, including hallucinations of complete scenes, déjà vu, anxiety, visceral sensations, amnesia, and unformed sensory experiences. Our findings suggest that the mental phenomena evoked by medical temporal, by medial temporal lobe stimulation are idiosyncratic and variable and are related to the personality of the patient stimulated. Now, more recently, and this was very cool because in a lot of the um, skeptical programs that involved debunking the near-death experience, uh, this chap named Michael Persinger, a psychologist at Laurentian University in Canada, uh, mimicked temporal lobe seizure um, by electromagnetic stimulation. He had his subject sit in the dark wearing goggles in a special chamber and using a special helmet. This was called the God helmet. You may remember, and you can look up the God helmet experiments, but man, Michael Persinger was considered the man by skeptics. They said the God helmet proves uh, the hypnagogic experiment, near-death experiments, out-of-body experiences is explained by the God helmet, but was it? I want to say this a lot, but was it? 
So they sit in a special helmet. <clears throat> Weak magnetic fields are then applied across the temporal plane, and during a 20 to 30-minute exposure, the subjects report their experiences, and these are recorded. And so before leaving the chamber, each subject completes a questionnaire that rates the frequency of various experiences, and Persinger reported that he has tested hundreds of volunteers in this manner. So in an article in a 1989 edition of Journal of Near-Death Experiences, Persinger writes, Kate Makarek and I have found that all of the major components of the near-death experience, including out-of-body experiences, floating, being pulled toward a light, hearing strange music, and profound, meaningful experiences can occur in experimental settings during minimal electrical current induction within a temporal region due to exogenous spike and wave magnetic field sources. So there's the explanation for the near-death experience, or is it? However, now Persinger adds that these induced experiences are fragmented and variable, whereas in near-death experiences, these sensations are integrated and focused within a brief period. So even with these qualifications, uh, Persinger's findings may not be as impressive as this may suggest. Five years later, he published an article that included a table summarizing the results of 153 subjects. Now, I, I can read you from that table with the items rearranged in order of descending frequency. So, dizzy or odd sensations, 75%. Tingling sensations, 73%. As if somewhere else, no dislocation, 55%. Vibrations in body, 54%. Vivid visual images, 52%. Left body or detached, 39%. Thoughts from childhood, 35%. Fear or terror, 32%. A sense of a presence, 30%. Images from a dream, 29%. Experiences not from own mind, 13%. Odd tastes, odd smells, about 13%. Inner voice calling name, 3%. And the most common experiences are dizziness and tingling, none of which are characterized in a near-death experience. And as we saw from previous discussions, uh, vibrations, fear, or terror, odd tastes, and odd smells never reported as near-death experience. And furthermore, the subjects in Persinger's experiments are able to converse with the experimenter and report their experiences as they occur. In other words, they remain in this world. They're, they remain cognizant of this world and do not experience a sense of shifting to another reality. They are remembering. These are memories. These are a, uh, they're in this world, and they're describing sensations that they're experiencing as part of this reality. So in view of this table, uh, Persinger's earlier boast that all of the major components of the near-death experience, including out-of-body experiences, nope, floating, nope, being pulled toward a light, nope, hearing strange music, nope, and profound meaningful experiences, can occur in a meaningful setting? Nope. Uh, it seems to be exaggerated. So, we so uh, Persinger uh, got quite a bit of criticism because does he really experience tingling sensations and vibrations to be profound, meaningful experiments? So, around 2004, uh, a Swedish team attempted to replicate his findings using equipment borrowed from his lab, Persinger's own equipment. Um, around around 2004, a team at uh, Uppsala University in Sweden, headed by uh, Dr. Per Gransvitz, tested 89 undergrad students, some who were exposed to the magnetic field and some who were not. There was a control group this time. A double-blind protocol was used, that is, neither the people running the experiment nor the subjects being tested knew, one, what the experiment was testing, and two, whether any particular subject was part of the test group or the control group. So the Swedish team also consulted Persinger's collaborator, Stanley Corrin, to ensure that conditions for replication were optimal. Gransman's team found no effect whatsoever from the magnetic fields. The only characteristic that predicted what the subject reported was personality. Subjects who were rated highly suggestible on the basis of a questionnaire, 
reported strange experiences when they were wearing the helmet, whether the current was on or off. For for instance, two of the three subjects who reported strong spiritual experiences were members of the control group, and 11 of the 22 who reported subtle experiences were members of the control group. Granfis and his team concluded that the well-established psychology of suggestion was the best explanation for Persinger's results, not the electromagnetic stimulation of the temporal lobe. Simple suggestion. They expected to have an experience, so they did. Persinger, of course, disputed the Swedish team's findings, arguing that Gransfist's team did not generate a biologically effective signal because they did not use the equipment for a sufficient length of time. Granfisk responded by dismissing his objections. Persinger knew ahead of the experiments there would be two times of 15-minute exposures. He agreed to that time. His explanation now comes, quote, as a disappointment. So the explanation of the temporal lobe stimulation and seizures, both for the out-of-body experience, near-death experience, and hypnagogic experiences debunked debunked so we see that the uh, electrical stimulation of the temporal lobe produces subjective phenomena that bear little of any resemblance to the phenomena found in near-death experience so how closely do actual seizures resemble the near-death experience So Ernst Rodin, who's a medical director of the Epilepsy Center for Michigan and professor of neurology at Wayne State University, shed some light on this. I told you I have a lot of material on this. He writes, the hallmarks and nuclear components of near-death experiences are a sensation of peace or even bliss. The knowledge of having died and as a result being no longer limited to the physical body. In spite of having seen hundreds of patients with temporal seizures during three decades of professional life, I have never come across that symptomatology as part of a seizure. So in contrast to the peace and joy found in most near-death experiences, seizures are accompanied by feelings of fear, loneliness, and sadness. Auditory hallucinations are more common than visual hallucinations, and the sense of smell and taste so often found in seizures are absent from virtually all near-death experiences. The perception of the immediate environment is frequently distorted during the seizure in contrast to the clear perception reported during near-death experiences. The memory invoked during a seizure or by electrical stimulation is of a random single event of no particular significance. Unlike the panoramic life review found in Western near-death experiences. And finally, seizures in electrical stimulation of the cortex do not evoke images of communicating with deceased relatives in another world ever. All right, let's have station identification. We'll come back with some more of this interesting stuff. I hope you find it interesting. I find it very interesting. The LMC Radio Network is a media alliance whose excellent shows include the Lucky Mojo Hoodoo Root Work Hour with Catherine Ironwood and Condraman Ollie. Sundays, 3 to 4.30. The Crystal Silence League Hour with John St. Germain, Tuesdays, 5 to 6. And The Witch, the Priestess, and the Cauldron, with Elvira Love and Phoenix Le Fay, Fridays, 6 to 7. All times Pacific, at 3 hours for Eastern, sponsored by the Lucky Mojo Curio Company in Forestville, California, and online at luckymojo.com. And we're back. The second explanation that's uh, popularized is uh, do the anesthetic drugs create it? Is it possible to recreate the near-death experience by drugs? And the most, the nearest to it is the ketamine model, ketamine, which was first synthesized in 1962. And uh, ketamine is... um, very close in chemical composition to PCP, by the way. And ketamine is very often used as a general anesthetic during surgery. Now, 
Uh, it's a disassociative anesthetic because patients or even recreational users, and people do use this recreationally, uh, tell of being perceptually detached from their bodies. Uh, now, hallucinogenic episodes or emergency reaction to the drug were reported um, in about 12% of the percent of patients receiving the drug. Um, and to prevent these emergence reactions, and anesthetists today use a co, usually co-administer a sedative as an attempt to induce genuine unconsciousness rather than disassociation. So when taken in lower doses, ketamine induces a, sort, a short psychedelic trip, which is what people do recreationally. Sometimes so intense that users believe their experiences on the drug were not mere hallucinations but genuine. These experiences have a tendency to involve a sense of disconnection from the surroundings and can include feelings of floating, being a disembodied mind, and going to another world. Now, this starts to sound familiar. So there's little doubt that some ketamine trips resemble a near-death experience, and we can see two vivid accounts. Here's one. My mind left my body and apparently went to what some describe as the second state. I felt I was in a huge, well-lit room in front of a massive throne draped in lush red velvet. Now, please, don't any of you all just start using ketamine just to experience these things, okay? Uh, I saw nothing else but felt the presence of higher intelligence tapping my mind of every experience and impression I had gathered. I begged to be released, to return to my body. It was terrifying. Finally, I blacked out and slowly came to in the recovery room. That is my ketamine experience. Now, the next account was a, uh, was a musician who had taken ketamine recreationally while listening to music. My perceptions were getting disoriented, and when I closed my eyes, a lot of information started to happen. Colors, patterns, cross-connections and sensory perceptions, sounds and inner visions got confused. I got deeper and deeper into this state until at one point, the world disappeared. I was no longer in my body. I didn't have a body. Then I reached a point at which I felt ready to die. It wasn't a question of choice. It was just a wave that carried me higher and higher at the same time that I was having what my normal state I would call a horror of death. It became obvious to me that it was not at all what I had anticipated death to be, <clears throat> except it was death, that something was dying. I reached a point in which I gave it all away. I just yielded, and then I entered a space in which there aren't any words. The words that have been used have been used a thousand times, starting with Buddha. I mean, at one with the universe, recognizing your Godhead, all those words I later used to explore what I have experienced. The feeling was that I was home. It was a bliss state of a kind I had never experienced before. Now, you may recall Timothy Leary. Um, Timothy Leary described his experiences with ketamine as experiments in voluntary death. But other ketamine trips bear only the most superficial resemblances to near-death experience. So... Um, I will tell you that uh, there are many accounts of ketamine experiences in many uh, journals, people describing their mystical experiences, um, um, uh, and pe where people wonder, what am I? Uh, where am I? I'm a disembodied consciousness, a mind suspended in space with no body whatsoever. Um, and um, uh, if you would like to... Um, explore these as a lot. I'll tell you that Barbara Collier, who's an anesthetist, conducted one of the largest studies ever undertaken on the effect of ketamine with 131 patients undergoing minor surgery who were given varying doses of ketamine as an anesthetic, and the effects were compared with 80 patients who were given other agents. And interestingly, only 37% of those given ketamine would have either liked to repeat the experiment or were indifferent compared with 85% of the control group. And because of the hospital setting, most of those given ketamine did not find the experience worth repeating. Um, Dr. Collier explained that it was the strange, vivid, dreaming, depersonalization and other sensory disturbances which caused most distress. Some patients considered that the vivid and frequently beautiful dreaming had been interesting and instructive but they had no desire to repeat the experience. Several patients thought they had died and others that they had gone mad. So describing the nature of the hallucinations, uh, Dr. Collier said, colored patterns are common, but isolated objects, both of a real and unreal nature, are noted. 
Um, she points out uh, uh, two nurses talking through the bed. Midget Chinaman, a large tankard of beer, and a grotesque monster were reported. Severe psychomotor disturbances are almost invariably associated with hallucinations. Um, the recurrence of certain themes was notable in the ketamine groups. 67% consisted of colored or luminous patterns with a kaleidoscope effect, watching or being part of multiple objects and floating in outer space or down corridors. A sense of depersonalization was a common cause of profound fear and was frequently interpreted as death. So ketamine seems to work by suppressing uh, those sections of the brain responsible for producing sensory information while at the same time stimulating the central nervous system. So those uh, the similarity of ketamine uh, with the effects produced by sensory deprivation seem very similar. Now, when you compare this, the conclusions reached by researchers is the similarity of ketamine and other drugs effects with those found in the classic near-death experience very limited. Um, in a subset of Dr. Collier's study, in which 11 patients were given between 40 and 60 milligrams of ketamine, 10 experienced the sensation of floating in space, 9 felt the spirit or mind rise from the body, and 3 were able to look down on their bodies lying on the trolley and note the exact time the spirit reentered it. Similar but not, not close. Perhaps the most dramatic single experience was reported by a male patient in the subset of 50 patients who were given dosages ranging from 150 to 640 milligrams. And you have to decide for yourself how closely this, um, this matches uh, the near-death experience. The patient ascended to heaven, saw God, and was reincarnated in Italy. Luminosity, green color, tranquility, and marked euphoria predominated. This theme occurred for over two hours into the awake phase during which he thought that he was speaking Italian. So, these accounts, and there's a lot of them, um, illustrate the similarities between some near-death experiences and some ketamine trips. But ketamine produces a considerably wider range of phenomena, than, which are idiosyncratic to the um, individual than those found in near-death experience, such as color distortion, kaleidoscopic patterns, images of monsters, and so on. And the near-death-like experiences reported by some people, mainly being out of body, sometimes accompanied by feelings of bliss, seem to be subject of a much wider variety of hallucinatory experiences. So um, some of the uh, people who propose this model have suggested that the brain may synthesize a chemical similar to ketamine that's released when a person is severely stressed, causing the individual to experience sensations of leaving the body. And um, this may be a, a defense of the brain from damage due to oxygen starvation or electric seizure. Um, now, um, this suggests that the brain may have a protective mechanism against the detected glutamate flood, which happens during stress, a counterflood of a substance that binds to the PCP receptor, preventing cell death. The brain is a well-protected organ with many known defenses. It's reasonable to propose that it has protective mechanisms against excitotoxicity. This hypothetical defensive flood of substances to block the PCP receptors is the only speculation in the process outlined above. The other statements are strongly supported by experimental evidence. Now, the ketamine model is the most sophisticated attempt so far to provide an explanation for the near-death experience in terms of brain chemistry. But this model rests on two crucial assumptions. First, that the brain produces a chemical similar to ketamine when under the stress of oxygen starvation or seizure. And second, that ketamine hallucinations, or some subclass of them, strongly resemble the near-death experience. And both of these assumptions are crucial and have to be kept in mind during a discussion of the model. And so a lot more research is necessary before that is, is uh, accepted by anybody.
Now, a one researcher whose name is Jansen, who wrote in 1997 in the journal Near Death Studies, um, which was an entire journal devoted to the ketamine model, argued both points for the conventional notion that the brain is responsible for the mind. Then Jansen reverses his position in a postscript when he says, I'm no longer as opposed to spiritual explanations of near-death phenomena as my article and its response to the com commentaries would appear. Over the past two years, I've moved more toward the view put forward by John Lilly and Stanislav Grof, namely that drugs and psychological disciplines such as meditation and yoga may render certain states more accessible. After 12 years of studying ketamine, I now believe that there is most definitely a soul that is independent of experience. It exists when we begin and may persist when we end. Ketamine is a door to a place we cannot normally get to. There's definitely not evidence that such a place does not exist. Which you have to say, wow. So it seems like special gymnastics to suggest that the old that the out-of-body experience and near-death experience like aspects of ketamine trips are sometimes just what they appear to be. While the other effects of ketamine, such as seeing cartoon figures, geometric patterns, and prehistoric monsters are mere hallucinations. We'd have to argue that these other idiosyncratic features merely occur side effects en route to the threshold of a genuine out-of-body experience or near-death experience, but an experience occurring with a brain that is still functioning although in an intoxicated manner. And there's been numerous anecdotal reports of accurate perception during an out-of-body component of the near-death experience. So what has to be needed to support the idea that ketamine can induce a genuine separation of mind and body are similar reports indicating verifiable perception during a drug-induced out-of-body experience. And so far, that has never happened. Now, the third theory, see, we're going, holds that ketamine hallucinations are nothing more than pseudo near-death experience. And uh, D. Scott Rogo, who you'll hear quite a bit about in this, these sort of things, an author who's reviewed the effects of ketamine, writes, it may be that ketamine in and by itself doesn't really produce near-death experience hallucinations at all. While researching the effects of ketamine, I found relatively few cases of classic near-death experiences reported by people taking the drug in recreational settings. They seem to be almost exclusively reported by patients recovering in the hospital from surgery. Now, this pattern could be a byproduct of the high dosages needed to produce general anesthesia, but perhaps the near-death experience like hallucinations result from the hospital setting in which the drug is usually administered. And we'll come back next week and pick up where we left off, and we will have time to go into the most extreme example of near-death experience ever recorded. I am John St. Germain, and we'll also talk about the dying brain theory of Susan Blackmore and why it was shot down uh, by herself. In fact, she shot it down herself after she proposed it. Uh, do come back. As you know, we explore these things for the purpose of our own enlightenment, our own spiritual development, and uh, we'll be finishing this up in a couple of weeks. So stay tuned. <laughs>